Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. And while you're doing that, I want to uh, I want to just make you aware of something. I think some of you may know this, uh, and if you don't, uh, there's still time. You you can you can go ahead and, and come tonight if you have time. Tonight at 6:30, uh, I believe it's going to be here in the Fellowship Hall. Um, we are hosting uh, a equipping forum called on civics and civility. Uh, we've recognized, uh, and I'm sure as those of you from other churches recognize, just the, the, the political landmines that's come uh, for the church in the midst of what is an increasingly difficult, um, uh, and some of you would say, well, I don't think it's difficult politically. Well, it's difficult to discuss those things. It's difficult to, in our culture to even discuss ideas and have disagreements about them in an agreeable way. And that's especially not good for the church. In fact, the, the culture so recognized the problem that exists in our culture that back in, I guess it was May, uh, in the New York Times, uh, an article was written in regards to this, and it talked about this thing that's called uh, motive asymmetry. Uh, uh, no, I'm going to forget what it's called now. <laughs> Anyways, you wouldn't care about that part. What the point is is this, that we are now in a culture where it's not, no longer acceptable just to disagree with someone, we actually have to dislike the person we're disagreeing with. In other words, if you, if you hold a view that is opposite of my view, there must be something wrong with you. That's a big shift in the last 20, 30 years. And actually, it kills the ability to discuss ideas. Uh, it's not helpful at all. It's certainly not helpful in the church. Uh, when we, as we kind of navigate these things. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to walk as brothers and sisters in Christ in an increasingly tense culture and really be able to discuss things and, and not immediately start to pick sides, make, make everything binary, and have to hate the person on the other side of the discussion? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. George Robertson, Dr. Mary Wilson, and Rufus Smith are going to be hosting that panel 6.30 tonight. Would love to have you come. If you haven't registered already, you can still register online today. Um, I'm sure if you just show up, you're not going to get turned away. So feel free to do that as well. What I want to do uh, right before we begin, before we read this passage, I want to do something uh, a little different this morning. Um, I would like you, if, if there's an extra, if you, if you have extra paper in your, in your uh, notebook, or if you, have an, if you want to grab an extra sheet of paper that's there on the table, I want you to write down, and nobody's going to see this. This is just for you. This, I don't want you to read it out. I, I just want it just for you, but I do want you to write. I want you to take 60 seconds to write down the two or three things that are heaviest on your heart right now. Could be something with your job. It could be something with family. Could be something in a relationship, but... But what, what, is wearing, what, is, what is weighing down on you right now? Two or three things that you would say, for me right now, right in this moment, this morning, this Thursday morning, these are the three things that are heaviest or two things that are heaviest. So write those, take, just take 60 seconds and just write those down.
If you get done with that, I want you to write one more thing. I want you to write down one thing that you really hope the Lord gives you this morning. As we, as we study God's word this morning, what is one thing you hope the Lord gives you or teaches you or impresses upon you or helps you with this morning? I know Cliff has already prayed, and I'm not going to repeat his prayer, but let's just take 30 seconds and take these things to the Lord. So I invite you men to close your eyes, and, uh, and actually I would, I would like you as we begin to pray, I'd like you to, to think about, to visualize taking those two or three things that are heaviest on your heart, and, and I want you to just place them at the feet of Jesus. I just want you to put them there and let them go, like take them out of your hands Put them at the Lord's feet. Heavenly Father, you are the one who is all-knowing, and you are the one who is all-loving. So you care about us as your dearly loved sons. And you know these things that we've written down, and you understand them. And Father, you know how much they worry us, bring concern, um, Take up our emotional energy. Father, we, we lay them at your feet because we need to lay them down. And you know our desire for this morning. And you know how it's specific to us. You are a personal God. So, Father, we know you hear us. We pray that you would work these things into our lives this morning. And, Father, if there's something better for us that you have than what we've written down, we trust you'll give us that too. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers, as we dive into the Word this morning, you've noticed that in the scriptural introduction, I have repeated what has been the, the, the mantra for us that we need to keep before us constantly. Every time we come to God's Word, every time we read it, every time we sit and listen to a sermon, every time we open up our Bibles for our personal time with the Lord, we always want to first and foremost be knowing something. And when we say we're knowing something, we don't want to jump in the text. We don't want to jump right away to where do we see ourselves in the text. We want to start with, what does this text teach me about God, about His character, about His attributes? We want to start there, not start with us, we want to start with Him. And every place of Scripture is going to teach us something about God. And then we want to, we want to be being. What, who is it that we are? We want to understand, what does this text teach me about who I am or who I should be? What does that look like? And then we don't want it to just stay in our heads we don't want to just come here and have this be a, you know, a great or solid seminary course on the book of Genesis. We actually want to say, okay, well, Lord, now how, does this, how is this going to work itself? How are these truths about who God is and about who I am or who I should be, how do these things work themselves out in my life? How does, during this day or during the end of this week, how do I begin to, to work these things out in my daily life so that these realities become who I am, and they, and they make me who I am. I'm shaped by you. And so we always want to be thinking that way, knowing, being, doing, constantly, every time we open up God's word. We don't want to just stop at knowing. We don't want to jump to being before knowing. And, uh, and we certainly don't want to have any of that, uh, any of our actions not be reflective of actually what's taught in the text. This morning, we're, as we read Genesis 18, it remind us that right before Christmas, we looked at Genesis 15, which was the covenant, one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. 
when God made a covenant with Abraham. And then last week, um, we, uh, <laughs> Barton and I um, thought, you know what, let's have somebody else teach about circumcision. So we tried to dump it off. We tried to dump it off on David, but then he's like, no, I've got intestinal problems. And uh, it ended up in being Tim's problem to take care of. But a sealing of that covenant. And this morning, we're going to look at, and this is the thing I want us to get most of all. I want us to see in this text the overwhelming mercy of God. We're going to be looking at judgment brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah. I want us to understand that, that this chapter reveals to us over and over and over again, the overwhelming mercy of God. So let's read uh, this and follow along as I read. Verse 1, Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. I just want you to notice in verse 3 that the word Lord there is not in all caps. Okay? So uh, it's not, he's not saying Yahweh. Clearly Abraham thinks there's something special about these men. But at this point, he's not sure what that is. You know he's something special because he bows down to the earth because he's about to prepare this feast. But he doesn't recognize yet that this is Yahweh. Verse 4, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do of you as you have said. And Abraham quickly went to the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three Sarahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Again, recognizing there's something special about these men. He said, I'm going to give you some bread and water. And then he prepares a feast. Three Sarahs of flour is like three pounds. It's huge. It was a lot of bread. And then he killed the calf. And then he stood, which is a, which is a tradition in that time, to stand while your guests eat. Clearly, Abraham thinks there's something special about these men. Then verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely, excuse me, verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That means she had passed menopause. So Sarah took, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And why did she, and why did she say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? 
For I have chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they, what they have done altogether, according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Notice it's in all caps now. It's Yahweh. Then the Lord drew near and said, Will you indeed, excuse me, then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed wipe away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, Abraham spoke to the Lord and said, Suppose forty are found there. The Lord answered, For the sake of the forty, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. The Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. The Lord answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. As I said, I want us to see this morning the overwhelming mercy of God, and I want us to notice that there's two things that take place here, and it's here in your notes. First of all, we're going to see a covenant meal, a moment of a covenant meal, and then we're going to see a moment of an intercessory prayer. So verses 1 through 15 is a covenant meal. Why do I say a covenant meal? Because the only reason that, that the Lord himself can come and sit down and eat with Abraham is because he has made Abraham righteous. That's the only way it's possible. So this meal is in response or as a part of the intimacy, the presence that's enjoyed because of the covenant that was made in Genesis 15 and ratified in Genesis 17. And now as a result of that, there's this covenant meal. And he even addresses uh, Moses, uh, Moses, Abraham with covenant language, as we'll see later on in those verses. And I want us to see four ways in which God's overwhelming mercy is revealed or is brought to bear in the midst of this covenant meal. I want us to first of all notice in verse 1 that the mercy of God comes in his revelation. It says that the Lord appeared to him. Abraham wasn't asking God to show up. God only shows up because God shows up. You and I don't seek God. God seeks us. That's why John, when in, in, in uh, 1 John, writing about God's love, says it's not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. That's why we understand in Romans, as Paul maps out our salvation, it's not that we cry out to God. There's nothing good about us. 
Instead, it's God's goodness to us that he reveals himself to us. The fact that we hold Bibles in our hands is a mercy of God. The fact that we can sit here and freely receive by the power of the Holy Spirit what God has to say to us this morning, that is God's mercy to us. That he would stoop to speak to us is his mercy. He's not required to do that. He is so other than us that he's not required by any by any standard, to do anything for us His creation except bring Him glory however He chooses. And yet, in God's great mercy, despite our rebellion, despite our hard hearts and our closed ears, He has appeared to us. And His mercy comes to Abraham this way. He appears. Second way that we see God's mercy uh, in this covenant meal is in His presence. In verses 2 through 8. Now again, we're not sure that that when Abraham fully grasped what was happening. Um, Clearly at the beginning, he knows this is someone important. um, But he's not, uh, you know, he's maybe not sure. And the reality is we see in the text, because when it's referring to the one who is speaking, it it uses all capitals for Lord. It uses Yahweh or Jehovah. So this is God. What does this mean? This is what we call in the Old Testament a theophany a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, We also have a theophany in in Joshua, the book of Joshua. Remember the night before the walls of Jericho came down, that Joshua, who was the soldier, was a commander, um, uh, the general of the army, was going around at night around the walls of Jericho trying to find weaknesses in the wall. And all of a sudden, there at night, he sees this man. And he draws his sword and he says, Whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And this man answers, neither. But as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. And immediately Joshua bowed down, fell to his knees, because he recognized that he was seeing a theophany. He was coming face to face with the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So that's what's taking place here. This is a theophany. This is the Lord himself, and he's come to be present with them. He's brought along a couple angels, and, and his presence is a mercy. Again, this, this presence couldn't possibly happen except for the covenant, and the covenant doesn't happen except that God is the one who says, I'm going to do this. And so the presence comes there to and Abraham, and it comes in a covenant meal. It comes in eating. And I'm immediately reminded of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3, remember, you're you're right at the tail end of those seven letters to those seven churches. And the final letter goes to the church of Laodicea. And what we usually remember, often remember from that passage, is the part where the Lord says, this is the problem I have against you. You're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm and it makes me want to spit you out of my mouth. And we just remember that. We're like, yeah, that's how I feel sometimes, like I'm lukewarm. But he goes on to say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open the door, I will come in and eat with you. I will have a meal with you. I will be present with you. And this is the mercy of God coming to us. It's the mercy of God coming to Abraham. I want us to see in verses 9 through 13 that God's mercy comes 
through his intimacy with Abraham. An intimacy with Abraham. Fascinating, and I love it, that the, that the Bible shows us Sarah's thoughts. Fascinating for a couple of reasons. First of all, I love that the Bible just gives us what real people do so that we don't get caught up in thinking that, well, yeah, they're Bible people, so of course they did the right thing. I could never be like that. And over and over again, don't we see, even in, right away in Genesis, these Bible people are about as messed up as I am. And here's Sarah going, listen, I, I just don't, I don't believe what you're saying. Now, we're not sure, scholars aren't sure, did, is it that Abraham never told Sarah the promise that God had, had given him in Genesis 15? I mean, has he not yet let her know? And this is the first time she's hearing that she's had a kid and she's like, that's unbelievable. Or is it that he did tell her, but he hasn't done a really good job as a husband of unpacking that and really saying, no, this is for real. Maybe he, she, he said, hey, this is what the Lord said. And she's like, yeah, right. And he got sheepish about it and didn't say anything. We're not sure which one it is, um, but a, a, lot, a lot of scholars lean on. It probably was the latter. She probably had heard this before, but again, Abraham had not done a, a, a good job of giving his wife God's word and saying, no, listen, this is what the, what the Lord said to me. This is what, I believe this. He hadn't done a good job of convincing her. Whatever the case, we're getting a glimpse into her mind. And she, of course, is saying, that's ridiculous. I couldn't have kids when my body was supposed to be able to have kids. And we were trying. That's all we did. We tried to have kids. That was what you tried. You, you wanted to make sure as a woman, as a married woman in that time, that you had a kid. She's like, that, I was barren all along. Now, I'm way past the age of childbearing. So it wasn't even possible before. Now I'm old. It's, not po- it's doubly not possible. And you know what? My husband, he's even older. <laughs> this isn't going to happen. And so she laughs kind of a sarcastic laugh. Like, yeah, right. Right, that's going to happen. What is the intimacy? The intimacy is that Yahweh knows her thoughts. It says that she laughed to herself. Doesn't, it's clear that Abraham didn't know that she was laughing. But God knew her thoughts. That intimate with us. And that intimacy is even greater, brothers, for us. Because not only is God omniscient and, and know your thoughts, but if you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside you. What does that mean? It means for us that the intimacy is to- so tight that there are no secrets that you and I have. There's nothing you and I do in, in secret. There's nothing you and I think in secret. I remember when I was in grade school, about third or fourth grade, and uh, you know, I, I'd be in my room, and I, I, I would about to do something that was disobedient, like you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna copy this homework, and I know I'm not supposed to copy the homework, or I know I'm not, but I really need to get this done. And I'd sit at my desk, and I want to copy the homework, and I'd notice that my Bible was sitting on the corner of my desk. And I used to do something that was ridiculous. I'd be, I'd, I'd just take my Bible instead of going, you know, I probably shouldn't cheat on this homework. I just would take my Bible and stick it somewhere else. Right? As if, okay, now, now God will not see me cheating. You know? Now I can do this. It is ridiculous. And yet, don't we, in different, maybe more sophisticated ways, even as adults, act that way sometimes? As if we can hide our secret sins or our secret thoughts 
from God? We cannot. He hears everything. He knows everything. But that's beautiful because in our salvation, He knew everything. He, he knew all of our sin. He knew sin we haven't committed yet. The intimacy is that close. And that's His mercy. That God, the creator of the universe, would know your thought. He, knew, he knows what you wrote on that paper this morning. In fact, He knew it before you wrote it. He knew what was heaviest on your hearts. It says in Psalms that He's kept our tears. He's kept count of our tears. He knows us. And that is an overwhelming mercy of God that He would respond to us about like that. And then finally, I want us to see in this covenant meal, verses 14 15, the overwhelming mercy that comes to us through the promise. Um, I'm a Bible underliner, and uh, there are three places in this passage that I was like, oh, I got to underline that. And the first one is in verse 14. And it's that phrase where God says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? I'm an underliner. That's the first place I underlined. He says, listen, I can make a promise happen. In fact, I can make a promise happen even when you don't deserve it, Sarah, because of your unbelief. And we know from Genesis 15 that when God made a covenant, when he made a promise with Abraham, he was well aware that Abraham was not capable of keeping the promise. So what does God do? He commits the promise. He commits the promise only himself. Only he walks through the split animals. Because he knows if I make Abraham walk with me, this whole promise thing isn't going to work. So how does God reveal his mercy to us in the promise? The mercy comes to us, even as it came to, uh, to Sarah and Abraham, despite unbelief, despite unfaithfulness. In his mercy, God keeps the promise. He keeps the promise. Despite their skepticism, God says it twice. Here, listen, I'm telling you, when I come back a year from now, you're going to have a child. I told you it would. It's going to happen, even if you're laughing and think it's ridiculous. That's my mercy to you. It's going to happen. Overwhelming mercy in God's promise. Well, now the focus shifts in verse 16 to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says that they begin uh, to look. So now they've had this lunch or this feast at kind of the high noon because it says it was in the heat of the day. And the feast has probably gone all along uh, throughout the afternoon. And now it's getting on towards sunset. And it says that they were looking down on Sodom. And I wish, I wish I'd put together a map for you, but you're just going to have to imagine this. So if you're looking at this way and you've got the Mediterranean Sea over here and you've got you know, what we know as modern-day Israel right here, and you've got the Sea of Galilee up here, and then the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea down here. So Dead Sea is down here, and on the, on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea was where Sodom and Gomorrah were. At this point now, in this point in, in, in world history and geography, the, the waters of the Dead Sea have covered where Sodom and Gomorrah are. But back at the time of Abraham... They were right there on the edge of the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. And over here on the western side, where it's, where before, away from the valley, there were these hills and eventually more like mountains, not quite mountains, but 
But that's where Abraham was. And Abraham and the Lord and these angels now are looking down, the sun's setting behind them, reflecting off the Dead Sea, and they're seeing Sodom and Gomorrah there in the east on the eastern shore. And, never for, and don't forget, the reason Lot was over there was because that was the best place. That was the prized land. You know, that was, that was, the, um, that was the, the, the lakeside cities. That was the, the place you wanted to be was that kind of lush area. That's why Lot chose it. Remember, it says that Lot pitched his tent near Sodom, and then we found out a chapter later he was now living in Sodom, just like our sin kind of works. We go near it, and then, whoop, next thing you know, we're in it. That's where, what happened. But he was there because it was beautiful. So they're looking down, and they're seeing that, and that's the scene here where we pick it up in, in verse 16. But again, in the midst of this intercessory prayer, meaning that, uh, that Abraham is interceding, in a conversation, you say, it's not a prayer. He wasn't praying. He was having a conversation with the Lord. That's prayer. <laughs> he just got to do it while he looked at the Lord and he was having that conversation. He was interceding not for himself. He wasn't praying for himself. He was praying, probably motivated by praying for Lot, but he was praying for the city. He was praying for these two wicked cities. I want us to see how does, how, does, how does God's mercy pour out here? Well, we see, first of all, not just mercy, but in verses 16 through 19, we see God's overwhelming grace. Notice in verse 17 that the person that initiates this prayer, this intercessory prayer, this conversation, is not Abraham, but it's God. <laughs> God says, shall, shall I let Abraham know what I'm about to do? So the only reason Abraham is prompted actually to have this conversation is because God in his grace, again, reveals to Abraham what he's going to do. And so it, he, he says that to him. And God's grace is on display here as he talks about the covenant. Here's the covenant language. In verse 18, he affirms the covenant. He uses the exact same words that he used before. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he reminds uh, he, he, he is saying again, this covenant is sure, this grace. And then he says in verse 19, this servant whom I have chosen. Again, amazing grace that, that Abraham didn't choose God. Abraham was not seeking after God. We've seen over and over and over again, going all the way back to, to uh, Genesis 12, God is the one that grabbed a hold of Abraham in the same way that God is the one who has grabbed a hold of you and me. It's not because, brothers, we were smarter and could figure out this Christianity stuff. We're not smarter than other guys. And so therefore we get to be, we're not better morally to begin with, therefore we got to be Christians. No, we know ourselves. We know now, what we maybe didn't know then, is that we would have never gotten into the kingdom except that God came after us. We also know, some of us have lived long enough, we never would have stayed in the kingdom if God didn't keep coming after us. If God didn't pursue us. So here is the, the grace on display. And then in verse 19, we have the second place that I underlined, that I wanted to make sure I underlined. And it's a phrase right there in the middle. He says, For I've chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him. And then he says this. This is what I underlined. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. I love that right here in Genesis 18, 
God is declaring, this is what marks my children. This is how my children are defined. Because remember, we learn in, in, in the New Testament that Abraham's descendants are not just his biological descendants. No, it was meant all along that they would be his spiritual descendants. So you and I are sons of Abraham. And how is a son of Abraham to be marked? We'd be marked as those who keep the way of the Lord. How do we do that? By doing righteousness and justice. And I just want to point out, I'm not going to keep beating this. I'm just going to keep pointing it out because the controversy continues to swirl in the American church right now. And somehow we're, we, got all, we got ourselves all nuttied up thinking that we need to separate justice from gospel. And I'm telling you, the Bible doesn't separate justice from gospel. And you see it here in Genesis 18. It's not, being a follower of the Lord is not just about doing righteousness. It's also about doing justice. And so it, it, it's just not accurate. No matter what side of this discussion you, you find yourself leaning on, it's not accurate to say my church really needs to be about social justice. It's not accurate to say my church really needs to be just about the gospel. That's not accurate to Scripture. The full gospel includes justice, and justice means making what is right those things that are wrong around you. Particularly, and we're going to see as it plays out in Sodom and Gomorrah, particularly caring for those who are oppressed and needy and that, that, that justice is given to them. So again, right here, don't, don't let the cultural swirl pull those things apart. Um, if we're following the Lord, what marks us? What marks us is men who keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and by doing justice. Well, justice, that's the next thing we see in verses 20 through 25. God's mercy is displayed even in his justice. There in verse 21, 20 and 21, God uses the word outcry twice. I've, I've heard the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah. I've heard the outcry for justice. And if you were to do a word study on the Hebrew word that's used there for outcry, you would find that throughout the Old Testament, primarily that word is used in regards to those who are crying out as oppressed, crying out as the poor, crying out as those exploited. So most likely, this isn't some kind of philosophical outcry. It's not kind of like, well, you know, those two cities, there's some bad stuff happening in there, and there's just this general philosophical outcry. No, what is most likely occurring here is that God is saying, I'm hearing the literal cries from people impressed in that city, from orphans and widows and poor who are being exploited by people in power. I'm hearing their cries. I'm hearing them cry for justice. I'm hearing them cry to make it right. And so even as God brings about his justice, there's a mercy in that because he hears the cries of those who are oppressed. And he says, I'll go down and see. Isn't that interesting? Verse uh, 21, I'm going to go down and see. He doesn't need to go down and see. We just established that he knows everything. Why does he say, why does God say I have to go down and see? Well, over and over again, we talked about this before, we see in scriptures, uh, especially in the Old Testament, what we call anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphisms 
our descriptions of God or his actions or his thoughts in a, in a, in a way that we would understand. In other words, in human ways. One of my favorite is in Isaiah. I've talked about this before, where it says that God has bared his holy arm. He's rolled up his sleeve and flexed his muscles. God has bared his holy arm in order that all the nations might see the salvation of our God. He, he is flexing his bicep when he saves the world. Does God have an arm? He does not. <laughs> that is an anthropomorphism. That's a description of God that we get because we're human and we go, oh, I know what that means. Right here, we're getting an anthropomorphism that shows God's mercy, shows his justice, shows that he's going to do what is right. Hey, I'm not going to just look for afar and send down lightning bolts to destroy these cities. You know what? I actually have heard the cries of individuals and I have looked at people. I've, I know what's going on. I'll go down and see. Again, God's mercy on display. And as we think about this judgment, let me just say this. Next week, I'm, 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 I've been trying to make sure that, that this week I don't teach what we need to teach next week. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be back next week. But we're going to look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to look at the wrath of God. And it's going to be an important study for us, brothers, because there's a lot of questions we have about God's wrath. It'll give us a glimpse into what, how does this work with God's justice and his mercy? How does it work with God's judgment and salvation? And, and how do we sort out some questions we have? We'll get to that. I do have to say to us here, like I've said before, our culture right now, and they hate the word judgment, right? Don't judge me. Don't pass judgment on me. But for some weird reason, they love the word justice. We want justice. Unless the justice means it has to be on them. <laughs> then we don't like the word justice. Then we're back with judgment again, right? Here's the thing. Those things go together. They're not separate. You can't have justice without a judgment. <laughs> a decision has to be made. It reminds me of what I've thought about and I've heard recently in regards to the word discrimination. Everybody, you know, that's like a bad word. Don't discriminate. Don't discriminate. Can't discriminate. Don't. I'm like, well... It shouldn't be wrong discrimin wrongful discrimination. But you and I discriminate every day. You're going to eat lunch somewhere today. You're either going to eat at a restaurant or you're going to eat whatever you brought for lunch. When you do that, you're going to be discriminating against every other restaurant in the city. You can't live today without making some judgments, some discriminating choices. It has to do with wrongful. Are we doing it in, in the context of mercy and injustice. God does. God does it that way. And that comes to the third place I underline there in verse 25. The very last phrase, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? When Abraham appeals to God, he appeals to the fact that your justice and your judgment and your discrimination are always accurate. They're never wrongful. They're always exactly right. So though you and I may not understand always why God does what he does. And we may not ever understand some of these things until we get to heaven. We do understand from our Bibles that the God, the judge of all the earth, always does what is right. He is always just, even when we don't understand it. And finally this morning, I want us to see the overwhelming mercy in God's patience. God's patience. 
verses 26 through 33, we see this going back and forth. And it seems like, it sounds exactly like what Abraham's doing with God sounds like what I do at the uh, market in Merida, Mexico, when I'm buying a blanket or a poncho for my wife, right? I go in there and I say, how much for the poncho? And they say, it's going to be 250 pesos. And I'm like thinking, no, I'm not paying more than 50 pesos for that. And so we go back and forth. And I know what he's doing. He's trying to get as many pesos for this poncho as he possibly can. He knows what I'm doing. I'm trying to pay as little as I possibly can. And we just go back and forth. And maybe I walk away. We come back. We make it. You know, the whole thing is that what is that what you know is that what Abraham's doing? It sounds like it. He's not. <laughs> He's not haggling with God. He's not bargaining with God. I love the way Derek Kidner put it in his commentary. He says he's not haggling. He's not bargaining. He's exploring his relationship with God. David does this in all over the Book of Psalms. We saw that when we studied Psalms. David. David says things to God, asks things of God in prayer that, that those of us in here are like, whoa, I don't know if you should do that. And yet so trusting is David and Abraham of their God, of their heavenly Father, that, that they explore to the full extent the relationship. And that's what Abraham's doing. He's exploring, his, he's exploring God's mercy. He's exploring who God is and, and what their relationship will be like. And let me just tell you, brothers, God can handle it. God can handle your prayers. God can handle your tough questions. God can handle whatever you got. And he wants you to bring it to him. I want us to notice this, though, as we kind of wrap things up. I want you to notice, first of all, three, well, three things. I want you to notice that Abraham is interceding in prayer for a city. And he doesn't know everybody in the city. And he's actually interceding even for those who are wicked. Abraham's a model for us in this. He's not just praying, hey, make sure you get Lot out of that city and people related to me. Yeah, destroy the city. It's terrible. But get, can you get my family out? No, he prays for the whole city. Lord, would you please spare the city? It's a convicting thing for me personally. I'm pretty passionate about Memphis and I'll pray pretty passionately about this city. You know, but ask me to pray about New York and Los Angeles. I'm like, ah... I don't know about that. <laughs> Abraham, Abraham's going to pray for this city. And he's going to plead for God to have mercy on this city. It's fascinating and very encouraging and very convicting. I also want you to notice God's patience in this. As Abraham explores his relationship with God, God is patient with him in, in this. God, God moves along with Abraham. He could have just said, Abraham, Stop it. <laughs> What's your point? What's the bottom line? Let's get to it. No, that's not what God does. In his intimacy and his mercy, he's patient with Abraham as Abraham explores that relationship. And finally, I want us to notice from these verses and really from that whole 16 through 33, I want you to notice that God is more ready to save than he is destroy. God is more eager to save than he is to destroy. And that's a description of God's character throughout Scripture. God is more, it, it, again, it would have been easier for God to just say, they've sinned against me, let's wipe out this whole planet, everyone, not even keeping Noah, and let's not even do this. 
But God is more eager to save than he is to destroy. It's an overwhelming mercy of God. God is more eager to save in your life than he is to destroy. As we think about this covenant meal and this intercessory prayer, I don't want us to leave this morning without thinking about the ultimate covenant meal and the ultimate intercessory prayer. See, there's another covenant meal in Scripture, and it is the ultimate covenant meal. And for most of us at our churches, we get to experience that covenant meal every month, some of us every week. When the Lord Jesus Christ sits down and has supper with us and actually offers his body and his blood and we eat with him and we experience, God's word tells us, we experience his grace and his presence in communing together around the Lord's table in ways that are are unique to any other time. And we're not exactly sure how, but there is something there in that covenant meal that brings us grace. And there's an ultimate intercessory prayer because in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says that right now, right now, brothers, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's conversing with the Father and he's interceding, it says, for us. He's having a conversation with the Father and he's saying, look at Todd, look at John, look at Jim. Look at Hunter. Consider them, Lord, and remember, I paid for them. So spare them. Spare them. And God says, the Father says, I will. Right now, brothers, the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power and the beauty and the strength of your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would seal these things to our hearts, that we might know more of who you are, that we might understand better of who we are and who you want us to be. And Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us to live out these realities in our daily lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's men said, Amen.